Hello and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa. I'm an Aussie actress, a voiceover artist and an environmental master's student on a mission to demystify the big environmental issues of our time. Join me on my quest to find solutions and positivity from the wide variety of people working towards a more sustainable future. This podcast is recorded and produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Oh yeah, nothing quite like a jazzy little tune to get you in the mood to talk about waste. This is episode number one. And I'm really excited because we're going to talk about trash. Globally, we make a lot of trash. In fact, we produce 3.5 million tons of waste per day. This is pretty overwhelming, especially because if it's not dealt with properly, it has a huge impact on our environment. But the good news is there are incredibly smart people out there working to solve our waste problems. One such person is today's guest and waste management strategist, Joy Danielson. With a background in finance and business, Joy has worked worldwide using market incentives to tackle environmental challenges. She's a former McKinsey management consultant, and after leading two ocean plastic white papers for the Ocean Conservancy, Joy joined Systemic to build a program that solves ocean plastic on the ground through community. This program is called Project Stop. And beyond just reducing waste in our oceans, it's also creating change on a universal level by proving that a circular economy is possible. So for the past two years, Joy's been living and working on the front line in Indonesia. We discuss her experience of the overwhelming waste problem there, why managing waste is so complex, the importance of waste pickers, and how successful behavior change is reliant on tailoring it to the local interests and culture. We also discuss her new and free ebook, Leave No Trace, which she released via her own organization, Vital Ocean. All right, let's dive in. Joy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for, for having me and, and this opportunity. Um, so you, you come from a background in strategic management, finance and business, uh, which is not seemingly so common in the environmental field, but I think that's something that I want to talk to you about. Um, and you studied in Washington. Is that where you also grew up? Uh, no, I actually just went to university in, in uh, Seattle. Um, I grew up quite far from the ocean in Arizona. <laughs> um, ah. And I think where, where this ocean passion came from is actually Australia, believe it or not. Um, when I was uh, 19, I did a study abroad program and um, I went to Australia, I went to South Africa. Um, and in Australia, I learned to dive and I went to the Great Barrier the Great Barrier Reef for two weeks and dove three times a day off of a sailboat um, and ended up getting advanced certified, going from nothing to advanced and, um, and really falling in love with the ocean and just being mesmerized by it and finding sort of a sense of peace and um, I don't know, and, also, and almost like divinity in the ocean. And so I think my passion changed after that experience. Um, and I think people don't realize just how important the ocean is. It's really the life support of our planet. Um, so it, 
produces more than 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. It, it transfers heat across the globe. You know, it's responsible for the weather patterns. Um, and right now, it's the single largest, um, I guess, mitigation mechanism against climate change. So it's actually absorbing 90% of the heat of, of climate change and over 30% of, um, uh, of the CO2. And it does this at great cost to its physical and chemical properties. And so we're seeing a slowdown of the ocean um, and it's pretty scary. So when I thought about um, what I wanted to do in my life, you know, um, you, we only have so much time and how we use that time is really important. And, and I tried to, I guess I took a path um, professionally to try to work on problems that I really cared about. And so I went the, the business route um, and through management consultant because management consulting teaches you how to solve problems. Um, and, you know, and, and this is, I think, one of the most important problems that we have to solve in our world today. So you worked at Systemic or you work at Systemic and then you also have your own organization called Vital Ocean. I'd love to hear a little bit about both of those um, organizations and then also how you got involved in Project Stop. Sure. So, um, so Systemic's a really neat uh, company. It's actually a benefit corporation. So somewhere in between an NGO and a, and a company. So we make a profit by doing good. Um, and Systemic's mission is, is bold economic disruption to accomplish the sustainable development goals. And so it's really about working at the systems level to change some of our biggest challenges um, that we face today in the world. Um, so it's been a really, really amazing place um, to be part of. Um, I lead the ocean plastic work for Systemic in Indonesia. And we're working, um, and I, I'm sure we'll get more into that. Um, but we also have teams that are working on forestry, who are working on renewable energy, um, working on various facets of um, food and land use. Uh, so it's a it's a really neat organization. Um, the organization that I started, Vital Ocean, um, I actually started it before joining Systemic um, with the intention of doing the same work that I'm actually doing at Systemic. So, um, and it's really about, you know, I think after years of, let's say, working from Washington, D.C. and, you know, other places where you're, you're kind of behind a desk um, and sometimes you go into the field just to ask questions and then you come back and you talk and, and you write and, and you build models. Um, all of that's important, but I wasn't seeing change. And, um, and, and Systemic was starting a project, and this is when I was at the Ocean Conservancy, um, where they wanted to actually start a frontline project to build a waste system and actually stop ocean plastic where it matters most in a very high leakage area. Um, and so they, so a friend of mine at Systemic called me up and said, do you know anybody that could actually be part of this project? We're, we're trying to find some consultants. And I said, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> I'll put my hand up for that. <laughs> so I took a leave of absence um, from Ocean Conservancy and I, I did what we call a feasibility study, which is basically you see if 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 all the conditions are are strong enough that you think that a project like this would actually be viable, um, and that that involved you know um, meeting with various government ministries and sort of pitching the idea, um, trying to find a location that we thought we could be successful at um, and that also had a, a huge need, um, trying to figure out how the team would be structured, how much this whole thing would cost, all of that, um, and. And it turned out we 
we found a great place. Um, we had a lot of support. It was a good model. And, um, and so we, we, you know, our, our um, partners, um, in this case, uh, Borealis is the co-founder of Project Stop with Systemic. Um, so they wanted to, to give it a go. And um, so they decided, yes. And, and then I went back to Ocean Conservancy. Um, and I think I was just really itching to, I guess after like a few years of trying to solve this stuff, but from behind the desk in America, um, uh, I just wanted to see if, you know, there's like certain times in your life where you get a calling and you're like, you know, can I actually make a difference, right? Mm. Everything that I know. And, um, and so I decided to, you know, leave Ocean Conservancy and, and go to the front line in Indonesia and, and build up this program. So, I mean, this started in 2018. There was two of us, you know, and now we have a team of over 30. Um, and it's an amazing team, amazing group of people. And we're in three cities. Um, we are doing a feasibility study right now that if successful, um, will expand the program to millions and millions of people in Indonesia, which would be really exciting. So, um, so yeah, it's been it's been a bit of an adventure, but great. <laughs> yeah, and Indonesia is actually what the second largest contributor of ocean waste plastic in the world. Um, Asia being kind of the epicenter. I'm curious why why that is. Like, is there is it is it just because there's a lot of water uh, around all those little tiny islands and there's a lot of people, or is there something more like larger at play? And um, a second, a second follow-up question to that is, what are the complexities of these smaller nations that um, that kind of requires like external uh, waste management organisations kind of like coming in and going, hey, we can help you. Let's set up these, um, let's set up these kind of systems. Good questions. Um, I think, and, and this doesn't have a straightforward answer, right? Um, Honestly, so I've done lots of research, I would say, in Indonesia, also the Philippines, China, um, Vietnam, Hong Kong. Um, and I can say, honestly, that each of them has their own unique sort of root causes of why they're sort of in the top um, leakage destinations. Um, just in general, if I had to sort of put it in a, a nice sort of box, um, I would say that these are all rapidly developing economies that have grown faster than their ability, like both um, in the types of products that people are buying, um, the level of the population, et cetera. They've grown faster than, than the waste systems, um, than their own waste systems have, have allowed. And in some of these, these um, economies, especially in rural and remote areas, um, they've just never rolled out waste management, right? So, um, and this is particularly true in China and Indonesia. So in Indonesia, only 39% of the waste is collected. So this is a country of, you know, 265 million people approximately. Um, and if you have, you know, 61% of the waste going into the environment, that's 40 million tons of waste every year, you know, being either burnt or, or dumped, whether it's land or water. Um, it just, obviously it, it creates a huge amount of leakage. Um, and in China, with its, I think it's 1.4 billion people, um, similar situation, right? It's it's often the the rural areas where um, it's just harder to get services to. You know, there's not the tax base. You don't have the the infrastructure isn't as well developed. I mean, anywhere in the world, right? Um, so, 
So these are the types of challenges. And I, and I think when you're talking about ocean plastic in particular, you're looking at places like Indonesia has 17,000 islands, right? Um, similar with Philippines, you know. Um, so you, you know, they just have a lot more sort of water around them. Um, and you have large populations. And I think that combination of rapid growth um, large populations, a lot of water, et cetera. It just creates the, the sort of challenges that we see today. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And it seems with Project Stop that it's as much about uh, managing the leakage of waste as it is about creating jobs and involving the local community. Do you think that is where other waste management systems have potentially gone wrong? Um, I actually think it's, it's quite a bit different. Um, so waste management, when you, when you think about it, you know, collecting waste and, and, you know, recycling it or bringing it to landfill, it seems fairly simple, right? But it's, but it's actually a complex system. And generally what happens is most organizations are working on a piece of that system, right? They're, they're either focusing just on the plastics recycling or they're focused on behavior change or they're focused on, um, I don't know, organics, you know, making compost, that sort of thing. And, and I think to really address this, you have to focus on the entire system. And I think that's what we are fortunate enough to be doing. So we actually put a team on the ground for two to three years. Um, that's very experienced team that's dealing with every single complication, whether it's part of the official waste system or not. If it gets in the way, then we solve it, right? Um, and, and I think we can do that because we're able to raise literally millions of dollars per each of these cities. Um, and we have fairly large teams and we have um, expertise across a lot of different areas. And I think it's hard for most organizations um, to work, to be able to get, you know, that amount of resources and stuff. Mm. Because waste is kind of, it seems it's often dealt with on a local level, like each, at least in Australia, you know, every local council deals with their waste and the other little local council deals with their waste. And I know we have a national waste scheme and then also statewide waste schemes, but it is quite a local thing, and I and I wonder if that, if it was more of a larger, I don't know. I mean, there's complexities to the whole system, as you said. It's it's not just a simple like you put your trash in the bin and then it goes magically to a faraway place. Um, <laughs> but it does, yeah. From what I'm I'm taking from what you're saying is that in, instead of focusing just on one and then the next and then the next, kind of like roll it out like nationally. Well, you know, there's trade offs, right? Um, mm. And Indonesia, and I think one of Indonesia's challenges is because um, there is a culture of dealing it, dealing with waste at the community level, um, which is basically like a village level. Um, and a village can have, let's say, 2,000 households. So it's, it's more decentralized than what you're talking about in Australia. Um, and there's 75,000 villages across the country. So if we're going to work village by village by village, I mean, there's no way that we can do that within the next 10 years, you know. And so I guess if we can... Um, bring up the coverage of a waste system, then we can cover a lot more. That said, it's really, really important that the local communities take ownership of their waste system. So it doesn't mean, it means like the parts of the waste system that are more technical. So um, let's say collecting and sorting the waste on the conveyor belts and, you know, doing the, the sort of more industrial scale processing can happen in a centralized way. But your behavior change campaigns, um, you know, those are very much dependent on who's a really strong influencer in that community and, um, you know, and what that community's particular values are, you know, so sometimes with behavior change campaigns, we'll go in at, um, 
like in, in Bali, for example, Bali is a very religious place. And so um, we also use this con we often use this concept called Trahita Karana, which means um, like well-being is about sort of divinity with nature, with one another and with, with God and, and how taking care of the earth is actually taking care of yourself. And um, and it's it's a spiritual practice. And so that's one message, right? Whereas when we go into, let's say, Munshar, our very first city in East Java, um, that's much more about the health of the family and the health of the economy, right? So it's a fishing community. And if there's a lot of plastic in propellers and in fishing nets, um, it's not what they want. And so we're trying to clean up that kind of stuff, right? So it's a much more um, pragmatic, you know, sort of <laughs> economic um, argument than what we would say, like, let's say in Jimbrana. So, um, so those types of things have to really, like for them to be effective, it's best, I think, on the, on the really, really local community level. Um, but I think the the larger sort of technical pieces of the waste system, generally, we can, um, we can cover a lot more ground, and it's less expensive. Um, if we if we do that at one level up. Mm. What was your experience uh, of being in Indonesia? Like your, had you spent much time there prior or w was that your first time when you kind of moved and you were thrown in on, on the front line? <laughs> um, no, I, I actually, um, when I was with Ocean Conservancy and actually McKinsey as well, um, I had, I had been to Indonesia a couple of times, just more like doing research and, and to be honest, like just knew it at a very high level. Um, when I was doing this feasibility study for systemic, when I was um, taking that leave of absence, uh, we we visited a few different places to see, you know, where we would start the first pilot. Um, and one of those places was Moonshar. Um, and I just remember standing on this beach and like just, you know, feeling so sad inside, right? Like you could not see any sand. You, I mean, it was like hard to even see like the waterline, right? There was just so much plastic for as far as you could see. And and it's like one of those things when, you, when you're actually there in person, um, you don't, you, you get so much more sensory experience than if you see it in a picture, right? So like, like the smells, right? I mean, this like combination of burning trash and like, decaying rotten you know organics and you know just the smell of these like rotten fish and all of that and and it actually like almost singes your your like nose hairs and stuff it's like so astringent um and then when you walk on those beaches because of the many 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 layers of plastic it's like you almost bounce it's like walking on a mattress right um and and it's just it's a very um dramatic emotional sensory experience and and i think being there, um, that's what made me feel like, okay, let's do this crazy thing and, and leave friends and family and move to the other side of the world. Yes. I think what you guys are achieving is, is, is yeah, really amazing. Thank you. Um, so the book that you've just published, uh, Leave No Trace, it's for free and it's in four languages, so anyone can download it online. You, you talk a lot in the book yeah. about waste pickers and... I just wanted to touch on that um, briefly because it seems like they're quite a big piece to the plastic puzzle. Sure. Well, the book was about sort of five universal challenges of, of actually building these waste programs in rapidly developing economies. And so waste pickers tend to be, you know, in rapidly developing economies much more than like in Australia or US or something like that. Um, and in these places, I mean, waste pickers are entrepreneurs. They're, 
amazingly good at identifying which which types of plastic have value and in urban centers when you have a, a strong waste picker population you actually have pretty high recycling levels of those high value materials so they um they provide quite an important role uh in rapidly developing economies to help the recycling system um like places like australia i mean you're you're getting the waste in a different way, right? Um, and and I think the the drawbacks of waste pickers is generally they're only focusing on what has value, right? And and only like in Indonesia, for example, only 15% of the plastic waste is what we would say has high value. So you still have 85% of all your your plastic bags and sachets and all of that that are getting into the environment. So it's not like a a perfect solution um, from from that standpoint. And it's also um, it's challenging from a, uh, you know, like just from a safety perspective, right? I mean, you have a lot of people who are, you know, working in landfills and and working in conditions that um, we we really don't want to promote. We you know we want to actually solve and we want to help um, actually move waste pickers from those types of conditions into safer, more stable. Um, positions, um, which isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, but um, but that's why uh, there's a there's a big focus on there's you know one of the five challenges is how do we um, how do we include waste pickers as we transition waste systems into more clean modern circular systems because whenever we do so generally it takes waste it takes sort of livelihood away from waste pickers and so but if we do it in a conscious way we can make sure that that they're part of this transition um, and they're not left out. And we, and we also move from a world with waste pickers and, and into a world where waste, picker doesn't, waste picking doesn't need to exist. And I suppose that almost would go back to the behavior change and the education because anyone can be a waste picker in their own home, so to speak, you know, instead of yeah. your trash getting collected and then thrown on a big landfill heap and then someone digging through that and pulling it out, you, if you understood the embodied value of your trash, you can pick it yourself. Um, right. But I mean, ultimately, you hope that we just kind of stop using so much. Um, that's something that I struggle with. It's like, uh, I think at the moment now, there's a lot of stuff that's being made out of recycled plastic, which is great. But then part of me is like, I don't, I'm worried that that's a slippery, a slippery slope to just being like, oh, well, we need, we need more, more plastic because then we're going to make more recycled things out of plastic. And, it, and it's fine because, oh, I saw so-and-so making board shorts out of plastic. So I, I can buy this plastic water bottle. And I'm like, I mean, I think with, with water bottles in most countries, um, you know, like in Indonesia, we the research that's been done um, by others and you know don't know for sure how how accurate this is but they say about 65 percent are actually recycled and in india over 90 percent right so if you have a good recycling infrastructure then certain types of plastics like water bottles um tend to be recycled quite a bit oh okay well, that's good yeah. but it, i mean but so many others are are not recycled right so um i would generally focus on things like sachets first before water, water bottles, just because we know um, unequivocally that that's what's getting into the environment most. Right. Okay. So water bottles are not so much of the issue. What, what items like are really, you just mentioned sachets, like what are like, what's something you're like, oh, this is, people don't know, but this is a real bad one. Yeah, it depends on, on the country, right? But mm -hmm. um, I'd say in Indonesia, sachets, um, 
a lot of just any of your sort of thin flexibles, whether that's like plastic bags or um, candy wrappers, um, uh, anything that's really small, right? So if you think about if you think about a waste picker, right? Um, if they're picking up bottles, those bottles have a certain heftiness <laughs> or a certain weight, you know, but if they're picking up sachets, these sachets are like this big each and they're very, very light. So you, it takes a lot more sachets to equal the same revenue as, as a bottle. Um, and, and also if you're, if you're sorting on a conveyor belt, um, it just takes a lot more movements to pick up these smaller pieces. And so oftentimes they just go right through. Um, so, so anything that's really small, I would also say like things that are made out of polystyrene. So like, your foam type things. Um, they're very light um, and very bulky. And so it's just hard to get the economics right. And they're also, um, just because of their sort of chemical properties, they're, they're particularly um, toxic for the environment. But those are probably, you know, so your anything that's like a multi-layer sachet, your thin foams, polystyrene, um, those tend to be the, the, the ones that are the most challenging. Just going back to your bio, uh, it, it says you use market incentives to tackle environmental challenges. Are you able to elaborate on that and put it into kind of easy speak for me? Sure. Okay, so a lot of environmental problems um, are really expensive, right? And to solve them, you know, out of the goodness of people's hearts and sort of a sense of responsibility, uh, you know, money is collected and, you know, to support these, these efforts. And it's, it's hard to um, keep asking for that money, you know, keep asking for people the goodness of their heart, et cetera. Um, if, you can, if you can actually create value somewhere that, you know, by doing good for the environment, you're actually creating entrepreneurial opportunities, then all of a sudden it changes the, dyna the dynamic. So instead of asking people to subsidize efforts, you're actually creating opportunity that people will make money by doing those efforts. Mm. It seems that the financial um, incentive is always a factor. How much do you think profit or just the, the finances um, plays a part in waste management systems? it's it's like pivotal yeah <laughs> one of the maybe the main reason that indonesia waste management um is so low is that the um there's not enough money going into the waste system so for example um it costs let's say between 16 to 18 dollars per person to provide circular waste management each year um in indonesia it'd be more expensive probably in australia etc um but in Indonesia, the government is spending, let's say, 56 cents, <laughs> you know, so you have this huge gap between the cost and, and the amount of revenue that's going into the system. And so what we try to do is, is try to figure out lots of other revenue streams. So we get some revenue from households by charging a service fee for collecting their waste. We get some revenue from selling the recyclables. We get some revenue um, from the government. We're trying to get some revenue from the private sector through EPR and selling plastic credits. Um, and then once you have these like multiple revenue streams, um, then the system can can actually become economically sustainable long term, right? Um, but yeah, I mean it's if you can't get the economics right, nothing is sustainable. Yeah. It sounds like the way you were describing the whole system then, I kind of saw the bigger picture a bit more. Um, 
it, it kind of sounds like plastic isn't necessarily, it's not a, inherently a problematic thing, but it's just the overproduction of virgin plastic where we kind of already have enough of it in the world that if we created a circular kind of system that, you know, a plastic bottle then in that case, in a perfect world where we have this circular system, a plastic, a plastic water bottle isn't problematic. Um, and I know in a lot of developing yeah. countries, like you can't drink the tap water. So what are you going to do? You have to buy bottled water. Um, so I get that also kind of like stitches up a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you know, so like Danone, for example, has um, in Indonesia, they have a great circular water product. You know, they do these big jugs. I don't know how, how many gallons are in there, but there's a lot. <laughs> and, and those are, you know, recycled and recycled and recycled and used. Um, uh, so, you know, when you can, when you can move towards those types of solutions, I mean, that's where, where we really want to go. Cause it's really about the product, not necessarily the packaging. Right. And there's some packaging that's better than other packaging, but it's really about what need is being fulfilled by that product. And, and how can we get that to the two people in, in a more, um, I guess, sustainable way. I suppose that leads on to my next question, which is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, uh, the individual responsibility versus the responsibility of the system or the big kind of companies that are producing uh, these plastic items that we're using. How much do you think change is dependent on consumers making the right choices versus companies providing the right options? Yeah, it's a, it's, God, this is a really good question. Um, and I, I have a few feelings about it. So I work with companies and with governments much more than consumers um, because I think that's the fastest way to change. It's much harder to change a million people's um, behavior than it is to change a dozen companies, right? That said, when a company's customers demand that they operate in a different way, that creates the pressure to actually change that system, right? Um, so, so consumers have a tremendous amount of power, especially in how they interact with companies. Um, and I would say like the buying patterns, but also, you know, just sort of lobbying efforts, that type of thing. Um, it's really, really powerful and helpful. Um, and I think if, if companies change the types of products that are in markets, then all of a sudden it changes automatically the, the habits and behaviors of, of millions of people. So in general, that's, I think that's the more potent way of acting, but it can't happen in a vacuum, right? The companies have to have a reason to change. Um, so so it, it has to be both. And I think just as an individual, I mean, I think it's helpful on, on many different levels to be conscious of your actions in the world, right? Um, and that includes what you buy. I, I think that's a big part of actually is, is, you know, how is that product produced? Where does it come from? What are the implications of that, right? And it's so easy to disconnect kind of what it took to have that product in front of you than just like what you see in front of you, right? Like it's, it's very easy to just not be conscious of what it took to, to build whatever that thing is, whether it's, you know, the stake in front of you or the, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 We're quite um, disconnected from all of the little parts. Uh, 
the yeah the, the the creation of the packaging the growing of the food the water that went into watering that if it's an animal product then the food that was grown to just feed that animal the energy it used like all yeah. of these things yeah yeah it's really scary well i mean scary or just like sobering when you kind of scratch the surface and you're like wow there's a lot and then i and then you consume it in 30 seconds and then it's right. gone exactly yeah. exactly and i and i do think like there's that all of that can get overwhelming right <laughs> like if you think about every clothing purchase you have every um sort of food purchase you have every um you know consumer package good purchase you have i mean you know at some point you have to live your life and you know and, and there can be a lot of weight if you're you know <laughs> if, if every single decision you're, you're trying to make but it's like just start somewhere right um and just pick you know what what's most important to me let me really find out what goes into this and and, and that'll help me make these decisions um, more consciously. And then, you know, so for me, for example, I, I'm very careful about the sort of clothing brands that I buy from, right? And, and it's important to me how, how clothing is made. And I gen tend to wear a lot of natural materials. Um, not, I mean, I'm not always like perfect about it and stuff, but it's something that um, feels good to me um, to know that I'm, I'm doing that. Um, but everybody has their own, you know, where they want to draw that line and where their focus is and stuff. But I, I do think it's important. And I think, you know, as you do what you do and like yourself, you know, I mean, you're, you're an influencer to, to many, many people. Right. And so as you make these decisions um, and people see what's possible um, all of a sudden, you know, like you're creating these like sort of micro changes that then add up to, you know, potentially a major change. And, and that's really cool. Mm. Yeah, everyone just needs to do one little thing. We, we don't need a, a million perfect people. We just need a million people trying to do one thing. Yeah. Well, there's, a, <laughs> there's a saying like that, but I, don't, I think I kind of mutilated it a little bit. Um, <laughs> I just have one final question. I'm curious how the pandemic has affected waste management systems. And I, I read an article recently um, that kind of linked the the drop in oil prices to the increase in virgin plastic production because, you know, there's so much surplus and it's so cheap. Like, why would you do recycled if you if you can just make it fresh? Um, curious your insights on on that and and what you've experienced since since the pandemic hit. Sure. Um so for us, it's it's been pretty dramatic. Um, so in our waste systems in Indonesia. Um, the government has had to um, use a lot of their local funding to combat COVID. Um, so they've actually been required, I think it's about 30% of their income um, to be redirected towards COVID. And one of the first places they drop is, is waste management, right? They can't really afford to drop healthcare. They can't afford to drop education, infrastructure, um, but they, they feel like they can afford to drop waste management. And so um, in all of our cities, we have zero government funding since COVID. Um, and that usually takes, that usually makes up about 20% of the revenue. So um, that's pretty significant. And then on top of that, um, we've had a, a decrease in plastic prices um, to some extent to around 30 to 40%, depending on the material. Um, so if you have 20% of your income is, is dropped from government funding, and then you're getting 30% less revenue from you know, your recyclable sales. And at the same time, your household collection fees have gone down because people have less disposable income. Um, you know, we're, we're finding a huge economic hit to the, the sustainability of the system. Um, so the system 
won't survive if this continues indefinitely, right? Um, there's just not enough revenue to cover the, the salaries of the collection workers. Um, and it also means that, so what happens generally is we, we collect the waste, we take it to a transfer station, we sort the waste, we recycle anything that we can, um, and then we take things to landfill. Um, the process of sorting the waste requires a lot of people, requires electricity on conveyor belts, et cetera. And when you have to cut costs, that's like the first place you cut. And so um, what tends to happen is you have to go down to a simpler model where you just collect and take it straight to landfill. Um, it's just much less expensive and fewer people involved. So um, the ramifications have been pretty, um, pretty substantial. Mm. Just before we finish up, uh, I suppose I just wanted to leave it on a positive note. Um, I know talking about waste can be pretty, can be pretty overwhelming, but I, I, I was really excited to speak to you because I feel like you're hitting it from a solutions point of view um, and hitting it really where it hurts, uh, which is, you know, top, top stuff um, while still, you know, working on the, on the ground in the front line. For people at home, what could be a takeaway for them? Well, so let me just first say solving this is possible um, and that we're, we're doing it. We're making huge progress. So there's, there's lots of room for hope. Um, I think the biggest impact you can have is, is one, you know, pick a few things to, to be conscious about um, your buying behaviors and really sort of figure out what, you know, like what makes sense um, with those. And I would also say um, if you care about these things, really, um, you know, let companies that, you know, your loyalty, let them know so that you know, and, and let them know the responsibility that, that they have and, and how you hope that they will um, conduct their affairs and also the government, right? So, because if the government and companies listen a lot to, um, to local pressure from, from their, you know, citizens and their, their customers, um, it's really, really powerful and it helps, you know, organizations like mine and, and other people who are on the front lines of, of this um, challenge, it, it helps us be much more effective because there's urgency um, and then companies are looking for solutions and we can help them, you know, find a path towards those solutions. Mm -hmm. So maintain the pressure. Yeah. And I mean, people, this is the thing too. I mean, companies are made up of individuals like you and me, right? Like, I mean, everybody wants to do the right thing. Um, they're just trying to figure out how to do it in a way that protects the value of the company. Um, and, and also, you know, the longevity of all these people's jobs, et cetera. So, um, you know, when we solve these things, there's more than just the environmental considerations, but we can generally solve them in a way that addresses that, you know, plus the environment, plus the economics, et cetera. Mm. So. Joy, thank you so much for your time. This has been thank such you. an interesting conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Um, your book is available for download for free on your website. Yes. Um, and I did download it and it's really accessible. I, I, I found it quite interesting. So it's um, definitely something that people should download if they're interested in learning more about waste systems and all of the interesting stuff that you have been researching. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, the whole reason for this book is like what I think the biggest thing I, I learned from all of that is that the solutions are already there. <laughs> you know, people have figured out how to solve these really, really hard challenges. It's just communicating what's been done, you know, in different 
parts of the world um, to a larger audience. And so that's what this book was about. It was originally supposed to be like a 30 page paper, white paper or something. And there was just so many amazing stories and, and insights that we ended up, you know, building a book out of it um, and translating into these languages to really be able to like cross the, you know, South America to, you know, Indonesia border, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so that, you know, you have these lessons all around the world. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And um, it's been so lovely talking to you and getting to know you. Wow. If you are still listening, uh, congratulations. <laughs> that was some dense info, but I found it super interesting and I hope you did too. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. If you like today's episode, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow on Instagram at the Nature Between Us Podcast. Until the next step, ciao.